Well, we come to God's word. Join me in John chapter 16. John chapter 16. I was just thinking back. This is the first time in over a decade that I've preached on this Sunday. I'm usually at Shepherd's Conference, but not this year. I schedule it because I don't want to wake up earlier than normal in the morning, Um, but this is the first time, so... We had a great time this past week. We had about 30 or so kind of come in and out of the fireside room for Shepherd's Conference. And it was a, really a, a, just a great privilege to be able to experience that, the preaching God's word um, uh, this week with people from the church. It's not normal. We usually go down there. We're going to do the same thing next year. Um, but one of the sermons that we heard this past week was a sermon on prayer, on prayer. And we are going to be looking this privilege to pray this morning. John chapter 16, verses 23 through 28, where Jesus here makes another astounding promise to the list of promises that he's already given from chapter 13 on. And the promise here is that we have access to God the Father through prayer. Again, that's the promise. We have access to God the Father through prayer. Prayer. And I want to have you let the astonishment of that promise sink in. Because if we are honest with ourselves, we often take this privilege for granted, don't we? But just grasp how remarkable this promise is. We are sinful and we are created. And according to Isaiah chapter 40, we are like a drop from a bucket when compared to God. To put in the words of the psalmist, Psalm 39, we at our best are a mere breath when compared to the infiniteness of God. Or Psalm 144, our days are like a passing shadow when compared to the eternality of God. We're sinful, we're lowly, we're creatures, and yet we have been given this promise that we have access to holy, transcendent God who allows us into an imminent and personal relationship with him. And he has promised to open heaven's doors for our words to enter. He allows our petitions to reach his throne. He lets our praises ring throughout heaven. He allows our confessions of sin to be heard. That's a privilege, an astounding privilege. And here Jesus gives that privilege to his apostles, to us by extension, as he begins to wrap up his final farewell to these men. Let's read the text, verses 23 through 28. And that day you will not question or ask me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, an hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request to the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, 
because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. You can see the prayer promise carried throughout the passage. Verse 23, Jesus assures his apostles, if you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Verse 26, it's repeated. Ask, implied ask the Father in my name. Remember where we are. Jesus and his apostles have left the upper room. They're walking the streets of Jerusalem at this point. They're about to cross the Kidron Valley. They're about to enter the Garden of Gethsemane, that fateful garden where everything will change for these men. Everything they know. And Jesus knows what awaits him and them, but the apostles do not know that. And so for four chapters, Jesus has been preparing these men for his departure. And one of the necessary preparations Jesus has focused on throughout this entire night is the assurance that though he is leaving them, they will not lose access to him. It's a promise. Think of John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. I'm leaving you, but you can still ask. There's still access. John 15, 7. If you abide in me, you can ask whatever you wish. But now here in John 16, Jesus takes those promises of prayer to another level. And he says, not only will they not lose access to him when he departs, but they will actually gain access to the Father. Connect this back to chapter 16, verse 7. This is another reason why Jesus can tell them, it is to your advantage that I go away. This is to your advantage. How could Jesus' departure be to their advantage? Answer, because a new and better access to the Father will be opened to all of God's people. This is the privilege of approaching God the Father directly through prayer. But again, let's be honest with ourselves here. This access to heaven is not always seen as a privilege. So often prayer is seen as drudgery, right? It's more work than it's worth. I don't have the time for this. This is why if a pastor wants to convict his congregation, all he has to do is preach on one of two things. It's either evangelism or prayer. That was worth half the price of seminary. If you want to bring conviction, those are the two topics. We know the struggle. We know the struggle. We've heard how important prayer is. We've heard that. Thinking of one commentator, the flowery language, prayer is the dove which when sent, when sent out returns again, bringing with it the olive leaf, namely peace of heart. Prayer is the golden chain which God holds fast and lets not go until he blesses. Prayer is Moses' rod which brings forth the water of consolation out of the rock of salvation. We know that. We've heard that. 
We know at least intellectually the benefits of prayer. Think of Augustine. Prayer is the protection of holy souls, the preserver of spiritual health, the column of all virtues, a ladder to God and the foundation of faith. We know there's an expectation to pray. I'm thinking of Luther's famous line, as it is the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. So my question this morning is this, given prayer's importance, given prayer's benefits, given the expectations there are to pray, why is prayer still so difficult? Why is prayer one of those Christian disciplines to be moved to the back burner of our lives so quickly? There are a variety of answers that you could give to that question. Pride is certainly one of them, right? Pride is one of them. We're too self-assured in our own abilities to pray. That's true. Why pray for daily bread when all you have to do is go to the grocery store and buy it? Perhaps we don't pray because there's a lack of faith on our part to pray. We don't grasp the grandeur of God when compared to our daily needs. Maybe we've adopted a deistic view of God in part. We think him aloof, maybe unconcerned of our needs. Let's get personal. Maybe we have received so many no answers from God that we just think, what's the point of praying? And certainly all of those are possibilities. You could add many more. And I would say there's a mixture of all of these that makes prayer a struggle at times. But I wanna add another reason why prayer is so difficult for the Christian. This is not the exclusive reason by any means. But this is one reason. And the reason is, We don't pray as we ought to because we have not considered deeply enough the motivations to pray. We've heard the duty to pray. Pray without ceasing. Devote yourselves to prayer. In fact, look at verse 24. We'll see the duty. It's there. We'll see the command. Jesus tells his apostles, ask, ask, command, Ask the Father for anything. So there is a duty there. We know that. We know the warnings if we don't pray. We'll see that with the apostles later. We've seen plenty of examples of prayer. But my question is this. Have we considered deeply enough the motivations to pray? Why is prayer such a privilege that we have been given And that's what Jesus does in this passage. He offers his apostles five motivations to pray. Five motivations so that they will not stay silent after he leaves them, but will approach the Father with every request they have and every need they encounter. Five motivations that show just how much A privilege prayer truly is. Motivations we need. We need to think deeply on these. And if we do, we will indeed be moved and motivated 
to pray. Let's look at the text. We'll focus on the first three motivations this morning. Let's begin with motivation number one. Motivation number one, why pray? Why pray? Because prayer has been purchased by Christ on his cross. Because prayer has been purchased by Christ on his cross. Be sure to connect Jesus' words on prayer here in these six verses with what Jesus has said in the last seven verses. Notice the first three words in verse 23. In that day. In that day. The day. What day? The day Jesus promised would dawn in verse 16. When you will no longer see me. But then in that day you will see me. The promised day in verse 22. When you will see me again. In that day, your heart will rejoice. This is the day of crucifixion, the day of resurrection. The connection is this. My death, Jesus says, my death and my resurrection will change the way you pray because it will open access to the Father for you like never before. That's how we ended last week's sermon with this statement. Prayer is a cross-bought privilege. Prayer is a cross-bought privilege. Let's put it this way. Prayer is not cheap. Or let's put it this way. Our access to the Father costs Jesus everything. Continue verse 23. In that day you will not question me about anything. And the word question here is simply the word ask. It can carry with it the idea of asking for further information. That's how some commentators interpret this. There's coming a day when the apostles will ask more questions. They need more information. Jesus will give it to them. But this word also carries with it the idea of asking for something, requesting something to happen, some gift. Sometimes it's translated as urge or implore. There's an intensity at times with this word. Well, here, the meaning, ask for something or make a request, I think it seems like the best option because of verse 26. This is the same word Jesus uses referring to him asking or making a request of his Father, he's not talking about asking the Father for more information. He's talking about asking in the sense of making intercession. Asking his Father to do something. Saw the same word used back in chapter 14 when Jesus told his apostles, I will ask, same word, I will ask the Father, I will make a request on your behalf And he will give you the spirit. It's intercession. It's prayer. So here in verse 23, Jesus is talking about asking him, praying to him, requesting him to work and act and to give. And this makes sense because for three years, the apostles' prayers have been confined to Jesus. When they needed something, they would ask Jesus to provide it. 
When they needed guidance, they would go to Christ to give it. When they were fearful, they would turn to Jesus to calm them. When there's a need, they would seek Jesus to remedy it. But again, put it in the context for the last four chapters, Jesus has told them, I'm leaving you. You don't have that access to me. But here Jesus says, though I'm leaving you in that day, watch, in that day, you will not ask. You will not pray. You will not make requests of me about anything any longer. A massive transition is about to take place. And so what are the apostles going to do then? Where are they going to turn? Who are they going to bring their needs to? Answer, they're going to go directly, not to Jesus, they're going to go directly to the Father. Truly, truly, verse 23, truly, truly, I say to you. This is the last truly, truly statement Jesus will make in this gospel. Each time he uses this phrase, he always introduces something of infinite importance. There's crucial promises, crucial statements that always follow truly, truly. Look back to verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, your grief will be turned into joy. That's the promise of Jesus' death and resurrection. Truly, truly, important statements. Here, the truly, truly is this. Here's what I'm going to purchase for you through my death and through my resurrection. Truly, truly, here's my gift. If you ask the Father for anything, let's put it in the words of Hebrews 4. Because of my death, you can now draw near to the Father's throne of grace. And you can do it with confidence, boldness. You don't have to cower. Again, verse 23, we can ask the Father. Again, there's an assurance that he will receive us. And not just with some things, not with some things, but with everything, all our needs. Ask the Father for Anything, nothing is off limits. But again, back to the question, why? Why would the father ever allow insignificant us to approach his throne? And if we don't ask that question, we think far too highly of ourselves. Let's ask the how question. How can holy God turn his ear to a sinner Here's why, here's how, because verse 23, we come to him in Jesus's name. According to Christ's reputation, we enter God's throne room based upon Christ's merits, based upon his status before his father. Come to the Father because Christ's righteousness covers our unworthiness. We sang that this morning. Come to the throne because through faith we have been united to the eternal Son to such a degree that we are children of God. 
who like Christ can now approach the Father. Prayer is only possible because we have been forgiven and justified and redeemed and reconciled and adopted. Each of these is a gift of grace purchased by Christ on his cross. Again, the gift of prayer was not cheap. It was not cheap. Consider the sacrifice involved for Jesus to provide this. The privilege it is to come in Jesus' name. And I'm just thinking through the beginning of John up to this point. How can we come to the Father? What did it cost Jesus? Well, think of John chapter 1, verse 1. It cost Jesus leaving his face-to-face relationship with his Father. Think of John 1.14, us coming before the Father took Jesus to humble himself and take upon himself human flesh. Think of John 3.16, it took Jesus leaving the realm of righteousness to live in this sinful world, to be sent by the Father. It required him being rejected by sinners and forsaken by the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It took death, even death on a cross. It required resurrection from the dead so that direct access to the Father could be opened. That's the sacrifice. Leon Morris is right. Quite clearly, Jesus means his followers to take prayer with much greater seriousness than we often do. It's a true statement. The Gospels give us a picture of this free and direct access to the Father the moment Jesus died. Listen to Mark 15. Mark 15, 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. It's the necessary death to which we then read this, the veil of the temple, that massive curtain that barred anyone other than the high priest entering the Holy of Holies. That curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. What did that symbolize? It symbolized that access to the Father is now open. But connect it back to death. It's open because of death. That's the cost. Access to the Father is now open because Christ's righteousness. Access to the Father is now open because God's wrath has been poured out on his Son. The Son has paid the cost to approach holy God. And now... All who have come to Christ in saving faith because of Christ's merits and because of his death and resurrection, because of his payment for our sin, we can now approach the Father, back to the verse, in Jesus' name, clothed with that righteousness. His robes are now our robes, his name is now our name. 
And we can approach the sovereign king's throne with a bold assurance for the reputation of Christ comes with us. That's the privilege. But it took the humility of Christ's incarnation. It took the horror of his cross. It took the power of his resurrection to do, continue verse 25, notice. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. They couldn't ask the Father in Jesus' name because Jesus had not yet died. But verse 26, in that day, once payment has been offered, once my grave has been emptied, the Spirit has come, you will ask in my name. You will be able to approach the Father based upon my reputation and amazingly, he will welcome you to his throne. Do we think of the cross when we turn to the Lord in prayer? It's the first motivation to pray Jesus gives here. Pray because prayer has been purchased by Christ on his cross. Pray because prayer is not some cheap commodity. Pray because prayer is a privilege that costs Jesus everything. It leads to a second motivation. Motivation number two. Why pray? Because you have the listening ear of your heavenly father. You have the listening ear of your heavenly father. Yes, because of Christ's cross, we can approach transcendent and sovereign king. That is true. But we must never forget that this sovereign king is also our loving father. Notice that one word in the middle of verse 24. Ask, that's the command, ask. Here it's in the present tense. Keep on asking. Come off into the throne of grace. The point is this, the father is no heartless sovereign. He is not aloof to our pain or our needs or our concerns. He does not turn a deaf ear to our prayers. Ask why? Because he cares for his people. And Jesus bids us to come to him. We read this in part throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 34, 17, the righteous cry and the Lord hears. Psalm 34, 6, the Lord heard. Psalm 145, he will also hear their cry. Those are comforting words. God hears. But those are calls to pray to God in, in general. Here, Jesus commands us to pray to God as Father, as Father. So let this sink in. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, we, saved sinners, can do what Jesus, the eternal Son, will do in John 17. Look at John 17, 1. The eternal son lifts up his eyes to heaven 
And he says what? Father. We can do what Jesus does in verse five. Now, Father. Verse 11, Holy Father. Verse 24, Father. Verse 25, oh, righteous Father. Christ's Father is now our Father. Goes back to verse 23. Ask the Father. Go to the Father. Reminds me of Paul's promise in Romans 8. Because we have received a spirit of adoption as sons. Because the spirit was given to us based upon Christ's work on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension to glory. And Christ sends his spirit that's been promised in these last few chapters. We have this privilege. Here's the privilege because the spirit has been given to us. Here's the privilege. We can cry out what? Abba, Father. Because of Christ's cross, transcendent God has brought, been brought near to us. Because of Christ's sacrifice, the son's father is now our father, but not just father. Paul says he is Abba, Father. And that title Abba refers to a tenderness of a father's heart. There's an openness of the father's ear to hear his child's words and requests and concerns. There's an intimacy in this word, closeness. And God is no longer judge. Yes, he is sovereign king, but here he is loving father who calls us to come to him as his child. This is how united we are to Christ through the spirit. This is how genuine our sonship is. What the son will do in John 17, we can now do ourselves. And this intimacy between father and son is indeed a motivating reason to come in prayer to the Father, so much so, this is what motivated Jesus to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus was at his weakest, when he was at his most vulnerable, when the horror of the cross became most potent for him, what does Jesus do? How does Jesus pray? Mark, 14, Mark 15, Abba, Father. That's how he prays, Abba, Father. His prayer can be our prayer. That's what Paul said. That's how united we are. Abba, Father. Christ comes in prayer because of the compassion and the care of God here. He then adds, all things are possible for you. Yes, Christ is resting on the Father's sovereignty, his omnipotence. But then he can pray, remove this cup from me yet, returning now to the Father's care for him. Yet not what I will, but what you will. It's the fatherness of God that is indeed driving the son to pray. At his most desperate time of need and weakness, Jesus placed his future not in God as judge, and not in God as sovereign, and not in God as creator, 
but he placed his future in God as Father. And here in John 16, Jesus assures his apostles, he assures us that we too, based upon his cross, can come before God like a child approaches his caring father. He's assuring us that God will receive us with that same tenderness and compassion and love. Now, having said all of that, the apostles do not and they cannot fully understand all that Jesus is promising here. For one, Jesus has not yet died. So they can't understand the payment Jesus is about to offer. It doesn't compute. For two, the spirit has not yet been given and so they can't understand all the dimensions of God's fatherhood and what that means for them. Three, you can also add that Jesus is promising something that's foreign to old covenant believers. It's just too grand. It's too unheard of. It's just too intimate of a relationship to speak of between man and God, too intimate. Sinclair Ferguson has put it this way. Old covenant believers did not call God our father except in the sense that he was the creator of the world and also the creator of the nation of Israel. But now a new stage of divine revelation has been reached. Now that the son has come, the father can be known. Only now when the son is revealed, does it become clearer that there is a father But before these men could grasp the full significance of this new father-son relationship, they would enjoy. Jesus had to die. Spirit had to be given. Which is why Jesus says in verse 25, these things I have spoken to you in figurative language. Right now, everything that I'm saying is a, is a little bit foggy for you to understand. But an hour is coming. Again, what is that hour? It's death and resurrection, the spirit being given. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, when all of these promises will make sense, when I will tell you plainly of the Father. And that's what we see in Romans 8. We can understand this relationship now. The spirit has been given because the spirit has been given, we can cry out, Abba, Father. That's the promise here. It's only after the spirit illuminates our mind to the cross that we can understand, at least in part, the extent of our union with Christ. Now we see this further clarity about God as Father come into play at the end of John's gospel when the resurrected Jesus says to Mary, remember this passage, John 20, go to my brethren. So that's based on on this promise here. Go to my brethren. Earlier in John's gospel, Jesus called his followers friends. It's a good title. I want to be a friend of Jesus. Shows closeness. But now after the cross and after the resurrection, Jesus indicates that there is a new degree of closeness 
that we share. He doesn't use friendship language. This is now brethren. Jesus is our brother, which means that God is our father. And thus Mary is to say to the apostles, I, Jesus, I ascend to my father, my eternal father, I'm his eternal son. And we understand that, we get that. But then there's an and. And there's an application now. I ascend to my father and your father. My father is your father. And that was what we read in John chapter one. As John begins, the gospel as many as received him, Christ, to them he gave the right to become what? Children of God, to call him father. Their faith in Christ were adopted into, adopted into God's family. And here now in John 16, we are told that with the right of being an adopted child in God's family, that right comes with a privilege. And it's the privilege of prayer, specifically to God as Father. That's the second motivation. Why pray? Because you have the listening ear of your heavenly Father and he loves you and he cares for you. There's a third motivation here. Motivation number three, why pray? Because prayer is a divine means to experience supernatural joy. Prayer is a divine means to experience supernatural joy. Notice the end of verse 23. If you ask the Father for anything in my name, we've seen this all-inclusive language before. John 14, whatever you ask, ask me anything. John 15, ask whatever you wish. We've seen this. Jesus is freeing us, pray about it all. However small the detail, however large the request, bring it all before the Lord. And we saw in those passages, we just can summarize it here. Jesus is not offering a blank check for every prayer that we ask. No, the Father will only answer prayers that will bring him glory and the Father will only answer prayers that will be good for our good. That's how we have to understand the promises in verse 23 and 24. He will give it to you. Not everything you ask for, but everything that is according to his will that is for your good. Verse 24, ask and you will receive. Again, not everything, but only that which is for God's glory and for our good. And I think that's implied here. I think it's implied here because we have to connect this to God's love for us. That God is our father. Just think about it. In love, a father will not give his children everything they ask for. If he did, kids would eat Lucky Charms at every single meal, right? And that would not be love. That would be hate. 
which is the same thing when it comes to our prayers. It would be hate if our heavenly father gave us everything we requested. Just think of some of the things you have prayed for God to do 10 years ago. I guarantee you, you will think at least one of those things. And what will you say? Thank you, Lord, for saying no. Thank you, Lord. I mean, the example that comes to mind is my wife, when she was 10, she said, Lord, I will never marry Patrick Sliman. It's a true story. And daily, she gives thanks to God. (laughs) Or at least should. Our father doesn't hate us. He loves us. We see it in verse 27. We'll look at it next week in detail, but verse 27, the father himself loves you. That's the promise. And because of that love, Jesus' promise is this. Every prayer God grants will be for our joy. Every prayer that God grants will be for our joy. Finish verse 24, ask and you will receive. Why? So that, so that your joy may be made full. The Father will only give us what is good for us. Often, that's the no answer. Let's say it better. The Father will only give us what is best for us. This is what prayer does. It is God's vehicle for instilling joy to his people. Joy through prayer when we are reminded that our Lord is sovereign. We see it. We pray and we see that. We're reminded of that. We see that nothing is outside of his decree. Joy through prayer when we see God at work. We know that he's alive and active. Joy through prayer when we are reminded of his never-ending care. I think of 1 Peter 5, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Joy when we're reminded of his faithfulness. No good thing to see withhold from those who walk uprightly. This is the joy that comes through prayer. Back to verse 24. Why do we pray? We pray so that your joy may be made full. We can connect it back to what we saw the last few weeks. This is joy that the world cannot take away from us. Yet it is joy here, it is joy here that is contingent upon us bringing our requests to our Father. Again, to quote Leon Morris, his words are so pointed. Prayer does many things, but one of them is that it fills those who pray with joy. Sometimes the note of joy is muted in modern Christianity. Could this be connected to the way we pray? Just ask yourself that question. We know the hymn, don't we? Oh, what peace we forfeit. What should motivate us to pray? What should motivate us to stop the busyness in our lives, to squelch the pride in our hearts and approach God's throne of grace? It's not the duty of prayer. Though that's involved, it's commanded. It's not the duty of prayer though, it's the privilege of prayer. 
It's because prayer has been purchased by Christ on his cross. It is because we have the listening ear of our heavenly father. And it is because prayer is a divine means to experience supernatural joy. Oh, come to the throne of grace. We'll pick it up here next week. Father, you have given us a great gift. And, and Lord, we, we confess that we sometimes do not think of prayer as a privilege. We confess that. We thank you for this gift. Grant us repentance to turn from our pride and our self-centeredness. Give us, Lord, a joy, a thankfulness. Again, that sense of privilege that we are able to approach our Heavenly Father. Give us repentance and obedience in that. We thank you that as we come before you, that we are clothed with the righteousness of our Savior and you hear us. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.